one path, one choice, we win, or everyone dies. This is There and or Back Again, a special series by my brother, my captain, my podcast. Normally, our adventures have us journeying across Middle Earth, but here we jump into hyperspace to a galaxy far, far away. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And I'm Emily, now known as J.R.R. Tweeting. Today's episode is One Way Out. One Way Out. One Way Out. Episode 10 of Andor. Our spoiler warning is this. We will be spoiling everything that has aired thus far in Andor and any knowledge we may have of the Star Wars universe to date. Between the two of us, we've consumed a lot of Star Wars books, cartoons, (laughs) comics, and games, so we will naturally talk about that stuff. A couple announcements up top. First of all, to announce our Patreon schedule for November. Uh, We had originally planned to do a History and Tolkien episode, which we are going to push to December due to scheduling reasons. So for this month, me and Emily are just going to get on mic and, I don't know, fuck around and we'll find (laughs) out what comes out. Um, We'll probably talk about some of the stuff we've been watching, some of the movies, both new and streaming that we've seen, um, and maybe anything else that's going on in our lives. We'll just have a nice little little fireside chat with my good friend Emily here. Also, as a bonus, we are going to uh, release our next Two Towers episode early to our patrons, um, since our next Two Towers episode is of Herbs and Stewed Rabbit, a very food-heavy episode of our Lord of the Rings coverage, and we talk about the foods of Middle-earth in our discussion. We are going to drop that episode to all $5 and $10 patrons November 23rd, the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, so it should be some good listening to go along with your Thanksgiving dinners. Um, realizing we have people who are not in America who will not be celebrating Thanksgiving. Um, I hope you have a nice meal that weekend as well that you could enjoy this podcast too. Um, But we'll be dropping that to patrons at the $5 and $10 levels on the 23rd. It is going live to the public, I believe, two weeks after that. So you'll be getting two patron-exclusive episodes this month uh, to kind of fill in the gaps as we slowly approach the holiday season. Intro on the gray, unmarked body bag being zipped up. Hovered past the night shift, lest we forget that the impersonal monotony of labor exploitation strips us all of our humanity. Cut to Andy Circus changing into his uniform. And listen, if you're one of the people who tweeted Andy Circus hot over the last couple weeks, I will be calling the cops on you. We have to go tomorrow, says Cashin, and Kino shows a bit of reticence. Why shouldn't he? Given what we learn about him at the end of the episode, oh god, given what we learn about him at the end of the episode, why shouldn't he be reticent? Is there a better choice between life and hell and certain undignified death? I don't know, ask me after my next work all hands. Cashin does what he's shown himself to be great at. He runs the details. He notices everything. Nothing gets past him. And what the details tell us, and Kino, is one way out. In the dorms. No one is getting out, bellows Kino. 
And here is the utter magic of the writing on this show. It allows for the horrible, unnerving ambiguity of interpretation. Sit with that for a second. No one is getting out. No one is getting out. Is this a prescription? No one is getting out because Kino's going to rat on them? Because it's impossible? Or is it a description? No one is getting out. No one is getting out because nobody's prison sentence truly ends. And that one horrible, horrible moment of ambiguity builds tension beyond relief. Until it's true. No one is getting out. So let's get our heads back in our cells and start figuring this out. This, as an aside, was the first moment I cried during this episode. I'm a big old crybaby, but man, this thing was gut punch after gut punch. On Coruscant, in the whited sepulcher of the ISB, Specky Ginger Git, also known as Lonnie, <laughs> makes a good point to Partagaz. If we're trying to entrap Krieger, we can't deviate from the norm. We can't let the enemy know anything is changing until the point of no return. Cue Dedra rolling her eyes. Sorry, babe, you're not the only smart one here. Back to the prison, a quick visual reference to the start of Rogue One, then a close-up on the countdown. The numbers have changed, of course, but who cares, really? So, Kino rallies the troops. There is only one way out. Or, in other words... A wise man once said, we all did, fuck you. But between now and then, we have to make it seem like nothing is amiss. As in Coruscant, so in prison. As above, so below. Everything's under control, situation normal. Everything's perfectly alright now, we're fine now, thank you. How are you? Begin the shift, return to Ferrix. Hello to Dr. Mulmoy, who is having to deal with Marva refusing to take her pills before they prevent her from eating. ADHD icon. Cinta, hello, dear sweet Cinta, my beloved wife. She, of course, sees this. But so too does someone else. Someone who looks rather a lot less friendly. Back to Coruscant, Thomas Jefferson, or rather, Stannis Baratheon, is here to harass Mon. I don't want to denigrate the mastery of this scene by trying to summarize it, so we'll get to the key issue. Stannis will help Mon out, but he ain't doing it for nothing. Your 13-year-old daughter, he says, should meet my 14-year-old son. Those are the ancient ways of our people, aren't they? Fuck. We've spent an entire season hearing about Mon and her stupid marriage to her stupid husband. And yes, that's world-building, but it's world-building with a purpose. Here is the payoff we didn't know we were going to get. Here is the tension resolution we didn't see coming. Here is what Oscar award-winning writing gets you. In prison, the breakout plan goes into action. Cashin whittles away at a pipe. Kino plays the immaculate foreman. The replacement prisoner arrives, and we watch in horror to see if Cashin will successfully break the pipe in time. But, of course, he does. The show isn't interested in conflict caused by arbitrary material elements. It cares about conflict caused by elements that can never be fully mastered. By people. The pipe bursts. Water floods out. The prisoners jam the lift and start to throw their tools at the guards. The prison screws turn on the floor, and... Uh-oh. Short circuit. This factory is about to become a battlefield. The only thing that closed quicker than our caskets be the factory! Cashin and Kino head for the central command point, while Melshi takes the boys to go liberate all the other shifts. Remember, this prison break isn't just about our heroes. It's about a collective revolution. In the command center, the chief screws duly subdued, Cashin gets Kino on a hot mic. 
and Kino gives a rallying speech for the ages. How long we hang on, how far we get, is now up to us. And to reinforce this, this show takes the time to show us that all-important leap of faith. The floors are cold, says Kino, and so we watch the first brave man take his step into the new dawn, barefoot onto the cold metal floor. Don't leave anyone behind, says Kino. If your comrade falls, you pick him up. If he doesn't know what's going on, you fucking tell him. Our uprising leaves no man behind. I'll skip the ending of this plot for a second to talk about Coruscant again. Specky Ginger Git with the Neville Chamberlain mustache traverses the underside of the infinite city, grabbing an airpiece in a rusty old lift. Yes, there is a mole in the ISB, and it looks like he's not there entirely willingly. But Luthen does what he's good at. He talks this guy down. We've all sacrificed things for the rebellion, Lonnie. And no, I won't be pulling the op at Spellhouse just because the ISB knows about it. Kriegers only got 50 men. If they die, who cares? Not blowing your cover is worth a whole lot more to me than those 50 lives. This is the math of revolution. This is the math of intra-left sectarianism. And so, back at the prison, before we get to see Cashin and Melshi make their desperate sprint to freedom, we see what it takes to get there. We learn what it means to have a prison run entirely on hydraulics. And we have to ask the question, why is it important to learn how to swim? Well, because... This fucking island's a prison! Oh god, boy, but I don't want us drowning in some angry emails, so I just need to clarify... Um, the actor playing Davos Skeldon is Richard Delane, who is Motherfucker. the brother of Stephen Delane. I was looking at him the whole time, and I was like, he looks like Thomas Jefferson, but also weirdly not. Is it just the wig? Motherfucker. Oh, well. And I, uh, if you look at so the actor playing Davos Skeldon is Richard Delane, and he looks a lot like his brother, Stephen Delane, who played Stannis Baratheon. Um, but I feel like I assume some people followed me for my A Song of Ice and Fire coverage to this podcast. And I just don't want to get murderized for that one. Um, but it was fun letting Emily hang herself uh, with that for a little bit. Classic. Uh, but no, that that was an excellent recap. Um, oh, God, where to start? Maybe we should just start with um, the fake Stannis, because he is actually doing the bit with um, that Robert Baratheon does in the Game of Thrones opening. I have a son. You have a daughter. Let's join our houses. Um, I think it's excellent the way you put it that We've been talking about Mon's marriage, and a lot of it seemed just to be like characterization and just laying the groundwork for how Perrin and Mon's relationship is now. But turning that around and actually becoming something that, you know, is going to be introduce a new tension or conflict into the story, as well as what's it called? Kind of play into the idea of the performance of political power and how Mon has to keep up these like ancient Chandralin traditions because that's also part of the image she's projecting, even if it's not the most, not the one she's most about. Yeah. And I think there's also something kind of really interesting to me about like bringing in this kind of social element or, or kind of cultural element, because as they have pointed out repeatedly throughout the show, like Chandrillan customs are what they are. They're customs and traditions that predate the empire. Um, but as Mon is starting to realize here, um, these customs have 
been integrated seamlessly into the empire and into the sort of um, decrepit and 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 you know morally decayed elements of, of this this galaxy, this world that she she inhabits. Um, and I think kind of what this is building to is you can't have a successful revolution if you effectively kowtow to the the sort of cultural elements that you know you're uncomfortable with but you don't feel like should ultimately be touched because tradition is tradition the show seems to be really making the the kind of argument quite quite nicely that a, a true revolution leaves nothing untouched um and as much as she may be upset about you know palps not paying attention um to her stupid speeches in the senate or to you know <laughs> imperial overreach or the 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 space patriot act and um, there's also an entire sort of foundation, a, a superstructure, if you will, that 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 undergirds this kind of long um, march towards the creation of the empire. And for the empire to have existed um, for as long as it has and in the way that it has, there had to have been some cultural elements that enabled it. And lo and behold, the marketing off of literal children in a feudalistic marriage um, is one of these things that enables these fucking horrific um you know uh, these these fucking horrific politics and now you know mon is having to face this dead on and, and in a way she can't avoid like you know she can avoid the kind of um aftermath of aldani she doesn't really have to see dead people um but this is her daughter this is home um and you know i've been reading like a lot of uh, thomas Paine, tom Paine, um and um he's got a line in in common sense which is a really short pamphlet where he's like it is the good fortune of many to live distant from the scene of sorrow. The evil is not sufficient brought to their doors to make them feel the precariousness. And and this is, you know, Thomas Paine bitching about like the, the Tory loyalists in, in the US in uh, the the 1760s, 1770s, who, who are basically like, look, uh, you know, I, I'm not in trade. Uh, I'm not in international trade. And so I don't really care about uh, you know, I'm not. I'm not really concerned with these fucking Boston um, businessmen who are mad about taxes and, and mad about not being able to sell where they like to sell. And he's also kind of having a go at that. The the not well, the loyalists in, in Britain itself, in, in England and Scotland and Wales, who also don't give a shit about um, the 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 plight of the colonists on the basis that you know this is the kind of exterior colonies. It it couldn't happen here. Um, and this moment of having the fight brought to brought to your front door brought to your living room is i think a really good moment for mon because it's going to hopefully fingers crossed if she's not a total dipshit um force her on this path towards making her break with the empire entirely and just going you know guns out gung-ho yeah there's kind of an interesting two-step here because Davo has this very interesting line that says wealth gives freedom from others <laughs> opinions and stuff like that but you see what Mon wants here from Davo is like, I want this to be completely financial. I don't want to get in the business of favors or anything else. But I think there is, at a certain point, it can't just be money. It has to be blood, too. Mm -hmm. And they're kind of making that or um, externalizing the aspect of blood through familial relations, through the daughter, through an arranged marriage. That you, you, If you're in for a penny, you kind of have to be in for the pound when it comes to revolution. <laughs> um, you can't just be it can't just be a penny out of your pocket it has to be a pound of flesh. And I think. Um, they're doing a really great job, um, really paying off because it's kind of like, where is Mon Mothma's story heading? That's like something that was very interesting to me because she's not going to be on the front lines fighting with Andor or going to Ferrix or anything like that. But this actually poses something that is interesting about her class and is interesting about culture. And one thing the show has done really well is every planet we've gone to has a culture, mm -hmm. not just like a race of alien people that are kind of like this. 
And, you know, some of Star Wars, the OT, and especially the prequels, you can intuit a culture based on just kind of the trappings of however, whatever racist uh, <laughs> designs that George Lucas worked into the aliens. But here it's like, you, like we are learning so much about Chandrillan culture, but it's not just there as color. It is specifically leading us to this point that's going to be a point of conflict for Mon with her husband, with her daughter, um, and then also with all of her rebel activity. It all gets bundled up into this one very complex yet neat little package that I just can't wait to see how they untie it as they move forward with the show. Yeah. And I, I think there's also something kind of interesting as well, because like, um, as you say, like we are learning an immense amount about Chandra and, and, you know, more than I think we've, we've actually seen it in some of the books. Like we actually quote unquote go to it in quite a few of the books um, and, you know, maybe chalk it up to Chuck Wendig's inability to write a coherent book, but like <laughs> we actually see and visit these places and don't really learn a huge amount about it. And we haven't seen Chandra at all here. Um, we have only ever been on Coruscant and been in the embassy um, that is Mon Mothma's house, you know, the the ambassadorial residence. And and we've learned so much through that. And and I think it really kind of it it it, it proves the value of the approach to to story writing that that Tony Gilroy has been um, really talking up in, in the press uh, around the show, which is that he treats it like it's real. And and these questions of culture and 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 these questions of like not just literal cultural culture class clash, but like when your um, political commitments come up against what the the sort of hegemonic culture of of, of your people, your world, your nation, whatever, um, you know, what happens when these moments happen, these are things that you can only actually ask if you are thinking about it from the ground up. Um, and, and if you're treating Chandrilla like a real place, um, and, and if you are willing to do um, what some might say is the unthinkable, but to treat things that are potentially completely abhorrent as if they are um, potentially justifiable or potentially worthy of empathy. And I think that's really been this kind of show's massive strength is, you know, um, taking Mon Mothma from being someone who we all kind of love to hate in the abstract because, oh, haha, space or Larry Clinton, to being someone we love to hate, but on purely principled reasons. Like, she fucking sucks, but she fucking sucks for clearly innumerable political reasons now and not just because she has the air of being like a, a middle-aged white woman um of a certain type um which we all are kind of at this point conditioned to hate just on principle um it actually gives us that kind of meat to not just to hate her but also like you know when when um when when he comes out with this my daughter your or my son your daughter thing i gasp and i was almost at the point of tears because it's a horrible thing to have to watch a mother do or hear. And I think it's like the point at which I'm like crying out of sympathy for Mon Mothma is such a, is the point at which this show is really just, you know, knocking it out of the park. Yeah. Genevieve O'Reilly is just tremendous in the scene. Like just the way her face steals up mm -hmm. um, as soon as he says it, because all, you know, he kind of like slow plays like, oh, I would just want an invitation to come back here sometime in the future. And she just like smiling is like, okay, this is fine. Where is this going? And then as soon as he says, I have a son, he's 14 years old, you just see like all the facade kind of fall away from her face. Like, what do you mean you have a son? Mm -hmm. uh, and that's not, the that's not the words or the way she <laughs> delivered it, but it's like all in her face. It's just like completely dead is like, what makes you think I would approve of this? Um, and the way they stage the scene is really incredible um, because they do that symmetrical thing we've been calling out all series. They have Bond perfectly in center frame. And then on one side is Tay and the other side is Usually Perrin, uh, Davo. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, and it's almost like a devil and angel <laughs> um, kind of like on her shoulder. And you can see Tay is the good version of this kind of financier and Davo's the um, bad version. Hey, did you know Davo um, derives from a Belgian word for alimony claims and Skulden is the word for debts in Dutch? Holy shit, really? Um, so, so it's literally like child debt alimony Jesus is Christ. the name of this guy. Um, <laughs> it just incredible. It's just really incredible stuff. It's a really great way to realize it. And I think one thing the show is doing well, and Tony Gilroy talked about this in one of his most recent interviews, is he writes characters first um, instead of writing kind of like the plot first. Um, So instead of having Mon have to go through this beat and that beat to get here, to get there, um, to get to wherever they need her to be in line with Rogue One or Rebels or whatever else they have out there, um, it's more like we have written these characters and as soon as like they have to cross over with each other, like say Cyril and Dedra, we're not actually just seeing where we expect that to go based on plot, but it's like what would be true to these characters organically. Yeah. Um, so, so, and everything here just feels so organic from the point where Mon is like, I'm not considering your offer at all. And Dabo being like, well, that's the first time you lied this entire <laughs> uh, conversation. Mm-hmm. It's like, you're absolutely considering it. You're just thinking about how horrific it is and how, you know, what it means considering how you felt about your own arranged marriage, which again, it's breeding empathy without saying, I want to be Mon Mothma or I view her as an aspirational figure. It's just, I have complete empathy for the situation she's being put in right here and then. Yeah. And I think this kind of discussion about like truth and lies is also really interesting because there's kind of like the the show is really interested in the things that people say. Um, and and I know that sounds like a kind of stupid thing because it isn't just the things that people say dialogue, but like, yes, but it's also interested in like the ways that um, people talk about themselves to other people, the way that people um, copy and parrot other things that they hear from other people. But but the, the thing that kind of was cracking me up is his line about, you know, being rich um, frees you from caring about the opinions of other people. But then him immediately going into this, but I want my son to marry your daughter thing because it 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 immediately makes clear that it's bullshit um and i was kind of joking mm-hmm, last mm-hmm. night as i was watching it that like oh it's very on the nose because of the elon musk twitter stuff but this is this kind of stuff that that you these are the kind of like quote unquote truths that you get to when you're telling a story if you have a very clear sense uh, like a very clear understanding of the world around you and like you know this guy says oh i'm rich enough that i don't have to care about other people's opinions and elon musk also basically says that but if you go on twitter right now you will watch elon musk you know flailing like a fucking 13 year old boy who's just gotten rejected by his crush for the first time desperate for the love and attention and affection he obviously never got from his apartheid loving fucking loser parents and desperate <laughs> for it off of the like twitter masses the unwashed twitter masses um who won't give it to him and and it's the same thing with this fucking and knock off Stannis as well. Like he's got all the money in the world and money has not brought him any fulfillment and power has not brought any him any fulfillment. And and there's this fundamentally human element to life that is not being answered by the call of money and power. Um, and, and, you know, if you take this scene in comparison to, you know, some of the scenes like on Ferrix from last episode, um, where you have Bix and Brasso, the fucking A-team to end all A-teams, who are going to look after Marva, not because she's paying them, not because they're trying to lord power over her, but because they genuinely love and have a have a deep and meaningful connection with her. And and you compare these two things, and yes, one group of these people actually has the genuine power and they have all of the money, but the other people have a reason for doing anything and they have a, a bottom line or a foundation from which to build everything else. And, you know, for someone like Mon, who really doesn't have this, once her kind of 
you know, illusion of power and security drops out from underneath her, she's gonna have nothing. She's gonna have nothing. And this is the kind of point where she's seems to be getting forced to decide, does she let this kind of moral and human foundation fall out from beneath her feet? Or does she take a stand for humanity? Like not in the, the like humanity as a whole, but uh, uh, humanity as a series of traits. What does she do? And and um, yeah, it's nice to be able to see that this show doesn't really have time for this kind of rich people. Oh, we're all fulfilled and happy and living good thing because it's just patently not true. Oh, yeah. Um, the line he says about how neither of us had the luxury of nonconformity or neither of us chose the path where nonconformity is an option uh, really stuck out to mm-hmm. me. Um, quick question. Who do you think is the funniest possible actor they can get to play Davos Gulden's little kid? Oh, my God. Um, the, what's the little the guy from Stranger Things who they always fan cast is everything because he's like child Timothy Chalamet. <laughs> Um, it's like I don't, I don't know Wolfen Finn Wolfhard something. That's it. Yes, there you go. That would be dead funny. <laughs> okay, I have no options for this. I think all of the kid actors I know have now aged up <laughs> into um, because they were all from Game of Thrones or something like that. But um, the guy who played um, Aegon in House of the Dragon, Aegon when he was like a little teenager, uh, it's Ty Tennant. It's actually David Tennant's adopted son. Oh no way! Um, he was. He was fantastic in his like two to three episodes of House of the Dragon, so I will forward his name there. You kind of mentioned what's going on in Ferrick, so why don't we just finish that up? Because I think it's all of like 90 seconds of screen time this episode. <laughs> Basically, we just see that you called uh, Marva an ADHD queen, which, you know, <laughs> hell yeah. Um, but basically, we see Dr. Mulmoy coming in, and he's being escorted by three older women, which kind of feels like this is the daughters of Ferrix, mm-hmm. um, whatever they might be. Um, we get some menacing shots of stormtroopers while we're here, just not doing anything. They're just standing guard. They're standing in front of like a gun placement. But again, just the way this show has intricately made the Empire actually fearsome again, mm-hmm. um, it definitely is like, oh, yeah, shit. And then we see Sinta watching, um, and then we see this other guy watching. And I love it because we basically assume he's an Imperial just because of the costuming and specifically his hat, um, even though it's not official imp garb. Um, I like that it it doesn't have to tell you, oh, this guy, you don't have to see him call into a stormtrooper battalion or say anything like that. It's just we can kind of tell by his general costuming <laughs> what his deal is. And if it's not that, then, hey, they, they surprised us or they you know pulled one over on us. But um, I think it's very deliberate with the costuming, as is everything has been in the show. Yeah, it, it's it's kind of like when you see cops at a protest, like plainclothes cops at a protest. And like you can always tell, even though they're in quote unquote plain clothes, because they're always wearing those dumb fuck ugly tennis shoes. Like the fucking New Balance bullshit that's padded out because these guys all just have like fucking massive ego issues. And like that guy has that energy, like plainclothes cop uh, <laughs> protest. Okay, I just wanted to knock that out before we get into one of our major discussions. Um, so there was an interview going around with Tony Gilroy that I did not <laughs> see this morning. Um, that's because all the liberals on my timeline had made joseph stalin just something i muted off my timeline because every time you talk about something someone's gonna always throw joseph stalin at you as if i have to answer for his political career in some way um so i had the word stalin um muted on my timeline so i missed an interview that was going around this morning 
Emily, can you tell me what Tony Gilroy said about Joseph Stalin in relation to this television show? Um, Tony Gilroy got into whatever Rolling Stone magazine or whatever it was and was like, uh, everything bad that you've ever heard about Joseph Stalin is a lie uh, up the USSR. Uh, Khrushchev is a con. Uh, No, that's not what he said. Uh, What he said, (laughs) I can't believe it's real. I was doing laps around my house because I was like, there's no way, like I must be dying. Um, So Tony Gilroy said that Cashin Andor in this show and the Aldani heist in particular <laughs> is inspired by Stalin, by Joseph Stalin's life. Um, and in 1907, um, Joseph Stalin in his youth um, robbed a, 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 a like a, a it, was, it was a bank robbery, but it was a train, uh, like a bank uh, carriage. Um, and they, uh, him and about seven other guys uh, held up this, this um, like, uh, a caravansary uh, full of cash uh, and robbed it as a way to fund uh, the October Revolution. Um, and 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 there's a book about it called, well, not about it in particular, but about Stalin's young life called Young Stalin, which is one of these books where, like, if you've ever been on the left, like, and you've ever been around people who like order too much off of Verso or or the like, um, <laughs> it's one of these books that you've seen and probably seen the cover of a lot. So, like, again, seeing that book name checked in uh, in a big magazine also felt like a trip. But but Tony Gilroy was like, and I actually want to read the whole quote because it is mind boggling t- mm-hmm. to me. And I almost don't believe it. Um, but he says, <laughs> he says, <laughs> he says of Joseph, Joseph Stalin, <laughs> if you look at a picture of young Stalin, isn't he glamorous? He looks like Diego. We're not doing the Stalin show, but it is fascinating. All through every revolution, it's the same thing. <laughs> and he it's- also makes the equivalence between if Cashin is... If Cashin Andor is Joseph Stalin, please everybody feel that in your soul with me. If Cashin Andor is Joseph Stalin, then Luthen is his Lenin, um, because Lenin obviously loved Stalin for certain specific reasons until he didn't love Stalin. Um, and one of those reasons was that Stalin knew how to bring the Cashin, uh, as evidenced by this bank robbery. <laughs> and and Cashin Andor is Stalin. Cashin Andor is Stalin. I feel like I'm fucking dying because Cashin Andor is Stalin. Yeah, no, it, it it was giving me life because when I finally got around to seeing the headlines and the tweets, like Stalin and or I'm like, okay, this is probably just some left shift uh, shit poster, just like making an absurd claim about it. And then you read the quote and you're like, huh? Yeah, yeah, no, you're right, Tony. Way, way, way to go. Um, but it's just incredible because, you know, you're going to talk about this and I don't want to step on your toes, but every time the Rings of Power showrunners open their mouth, mm-hmm. I wanted to just eat a bullet yep. uh there's just like no other way to phrase it that's all i wanted to do i was kind of coming around because uh house of the dragon both the actors and the showrunners had very thoughtful stuff um that they said they kind of had a bad run-up to the show with some you know comments about historical accuracy and sexual assault but then when they were talking about it per episode and in the moment like everything kind of came off as very thoughtful everything was very considered um, they did not show sexual assault, which kind of those early quotes would lead you. But it's like, okay, these people are allowed to talk about their show. But then everything I've heard out of Andor, not just Tony Gilroy, but even when Andy Serkis talks mm-hmm. about his role, um, it's just everything that comes out of these people's mouths is incredible. Like Andy Serkis was talking about how he viewed himself as Kino Loy prior to being imprisonment as someone who spoke up for the working man. He was like a he shop gave steward. himself this into. <laughs> Yeah, he gave himself this entire backstory, um, and you can just see how that informs everything here. And like you say, um, I don't want to get quite to all the prison break stuff yet, 
but the way that you know circus is kind of on the edge of a knife this entire episode um and then realizing why at the very end um it kind of just kind of recontextualizes everything and you realize he was probably completely committed to the cause it's just he knew that there was one way out in the end and it wasn't going anywhere but uh, please tell me about showrunners and their comments, Emily. <laughs> yeah, well, so I, you know, actually, just sitting here listening to you talk about that, I think, and 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 you are right. The Andy Circus interviews are brilliant. Um, he's done like two or three of them now, and every single one I've read, I've been like, God, this is this is excellent stuff. Um, and and being reminded of that because I hadn't really put the two of them together in my head for some reason. Um, being reminded of that is actually kind of making me change my thesis on this, which is before I was kind of going to revert the old podcast position of we don't want to hear the showrunners of any show do press because it's always a bad idea. I was going to revise that into it's bad when moron showrunners do press because they're just going to say stupid shit. But when great showrunners do press, it's good. Um, I'm actually now going to kind of expand this thesis and say that I, I think when you've got competency um in in as a as a crucial part of your production you're fine to talk about it because there is that base level of competency and and i think one of the things that the 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 entertainment industry kind of writ large has really been lacking over the last 15 20 years is competency um and the reasons for that are are really kind of simple and um, they're material reasons it's because to have people who are competent around you you have to pay them um and competency is expensive um, and if you look at um, a, a lot of the chat around Marvel uh, basically fucking destroying um, computer graphics as a as a sub industry within the entertainment industry, um, you will see that that Marvel pushes these people to the brink, brink um, and they get shitty outcomes for it. Um, but they also can pay almost nothing for that privilege of getting dog shit um, work. Um, and, and the reason they're doing this is because they don't want to pay the extra 15, 20% that it would take to get people to do it in a reasonable amount of time um, and to a high standard of, of, of output. Um, and if you look at this show, um, this show is, is, a, is at its base an argument for competency. Um, narratively, um, technically, I don't think it's doing anything particularly radical or particularly revolutionary. What it is doing is showing us what a TV show where every single person is doing their job and doing their job well, it's showing us what that quality is. Um, and, and because everybody who's, who's involved in the show does their job well and has the experience and the knowledge to do these things well, it's showing in the TV show, but it's also showing in the press, right? Because these are people with industry mm -hmm, knowledge. Mm -hmm. um, and these people, these are people who care about their jobs because they have the time and the resources to think and care about what they're doing and, and to really understand what their position, not just in um, in, in, in the, the context of like the show ecosystem is, but in, in the context of, of the entire industry and also the wider world. And I think, you know, whether it's Andy Serkis sitting down to do these interviews or um, Diego Luna doing them or Andy or uh, Tony Gilroy rather, what you are getting is you are getting people who are thoughtful um, and and good at what they do. Um, and 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 it shows. Um, and when you get people like the Rings of Power people who are untalented, unskilled, untrained and inexperienced, you get interviews that reflect that these people are not good at what they do. And they're not interested in being good at what they do because they've just gotten a billion dollar payout 
to be shit at what they do. So there's no financial incentive for them to be good. And to be frank, they're not really artists. They're they're money chasers. Um, these guys, you know, not to say that all of the people involved in the show at the top level aren't enormously successful and probably fantastically wealthy in their own right, but they're people who are involved in 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 art for the sake of art and, and because there is an interest in a genuine sense of humanity about, about art. Um, and I think this is also kind of a thesis that works as well in the kind of realm of cultural criticism. Because if you see, I've been following a lot of the press, right? And a lot of the radio interviews, podcast interviews, whatever that Tony Gilroy have been doing, has been doing, has been really kind of depressing because you get these people who have no experience, have no insight, um, and no background knowledge. And they ask him these fucking stupid questions. Like there was one for, I think it was the BBC where, you know, the interviewer spent like 15 fucking minutes being like, so I love Star Wars so much, but I really want to know about how you name the characters. Like, are you shitting me? Are you shitting me? This is one of the most interesting TV shows on TV just now, possibly ever. And you're asking about fucking what shitto? Like, no. And also, even if you do want to ask about the names, because I have questions about the names, like, for example, Al Dani and Al Kenzie. And especially if you are a Scottish radio host, and this is one very specific person that I'm angrily subtweeting right now, um, maybe ask about the things that you have a frame of reference for. Try and build out the world's knowledge. Um, but this isn't happening because there's not this base level of competency or interest from a lot of the people who are quote unquote cultural critics. And when you get these guys sitting, you know, the, the creative sitting down with journalists who are competent and do have background knowledge and do have expertise and interest, you get these really fascinating and good interviews. And it's like, holy shit, it turns out that when people are good at their jobs, we all benefit. And turns out when you pay people well enough that they can be good at their jobs. There is a trickle down of goodness. Sorry to borrow some Reaganomics bullshit, but like, turns out people being good at things has a good impact. Like, who could have fucking thought? Yeah, the marvelification of movies and of content. We've talked about this quite a bit. Like, here are the 20 Easter eggs you missed in She-Hulk or whatever. But it's also, like you say, it's in the interview process. Um, because I feel like a lot of people, when they give interviews for these cultural websites, it's just like, what do you think happens next? Do you think your character really died? Uh, it's all sorts of mm -hmm. like, um, why did you decide to include this person in your story? It's never really asking about the story in an interesting way. It's just asking them to fill in blanks that cinema sense might point out as a plot hole yeah. or how do you think this, um, I don't want to get into Avengers Endgame discourse, but like so much of the like interviews with the writers and uh, directors afterwards were trying to just like pick holes in the time travel stuff. And I'm like, this is not the point of what you should be asking these people. Um, it's just like, I, I don't care about that stuff. I, I'm a smart enough person where if a PG-13 movie about comic book characters has time travel, I can come up with a decent framework for understanding <laughs> it and just go with, I want to actually know, is there actual inspiration here? Are you borrowing from something? And I think part of that is, like you say, like we just don't pay the critical sphere anything anymore. It's viewed as a very disposable job that you can get freelancers or people who just want to do it for exposure to do. And we're just kind of pushing back on that now. But then you get people who just are asking questions. They're like, can you fill in this thing? Or can you fill in that thing? Um, and what we're seeing with the interviews, especially the ones with Rolling Stone that came out this week, um, are people like asking really thoughtful questions about production and ideology. Um, and I think it's great. Um, and I think some of it is also a result of corporate capture of the critical sphere. Mm -hmm. um, because you're not going to ask these tough, hard-hitting questions of Marvel directors 
when making sure you get Marvel content up before all the other websites uh, do, uh, or possibly when there are ads for Doctor Strange running on the podcast where you're reviewing <laughs> Doctor Strange, yep. which I heard this, like, it's just like, there's no reason for any of these people to want to challenge it. And given like the precarious material times we live in where people are struggling, I get wanting to get that paycheck. But as you say, it's a trickle down effect. The better stuff is up top, the better everything will be. Um, and that includes like if they actually paid their fucking uh, critics and writers to have a brain about stuff yeah. and actually attract people who come into, because there are good interviewers out there on the internet. Yeah. Um, it's just a matter of them lining up as opposed to the people who are there just to kind of interview as an infomercial or interview as an advertisement for a product like you'd see on Good Morning America. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think one of the things that has kind of been cracking me up as well is I've spent a lot of time uh, reading the trades, the kind of trade publications like, you know, blogs or journals that um, are just for screenwriters or people in the industry. And it's not because that's a thing that I do regularly. I promise you, I don't give a fuck about the trades normally. But it's because that's where a lot of the really fascinating um, interview questions have been given. And, and a lot of the, the, the like script writers or screenwriters publications um, that Tony Gilroy has been doing interviews with have been really fascinating because it's not just an insight into the show. You know, it's not just about kind of trying to piece together what's going to happen next. It's about understanding how he and his team got to some of these decisions that like, to me, feel like earth shattering decisions you know the thing like how the fuck do you read something about stalin and you're like you know what that needs a little star wars um and like you know getting to see that kind of behind the curtain see oz behind the curtain um is really cool because it's not you know i'm not a writer i don't do these things for fun but i think it's helping me at least on a personal level kind of think about how to think about things you know it's teaching you how these people think about things and how what the kind of, you know, framework structures, um, questions you should be asking when you're engaging with this art, like what these things are. And that has been re really hugely beneficial, uh, uh, you know, just for me on a kind of personal level, because I'm a narcissist and I love that shit. But like, I can't imagine the people from Rings of Power doing it. Um, I can't imagine, to be honest, a lot of the people that like um, pump out the, the big franchise movies right now. Um, Ryan Johnson, I can imagine doing it, and I can imagine he would have a very interesting interview. Um, but 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 there is this kind of dearth of um, wisdom, craft wisdom, craftsmanship, um, and getting to see these different places where it's drawn out, and also getting to see that like you know questions that scriptwriters, screenwriters would act, ask other screenwriters. Um, can have benefits for people who are not screenwriters. I'm not a screenwriter, I never will be, but some of these questions that they're asking one another and these conversations they're having um, are interesting for me in other in other ways. And and it is nice to see that kind of buildup of, of the value of uh, critical discourse around art, um, around, again, as I feel like I say in every single every episode, around the fucking Star Wars. <laughs> like, I really can't believe that this is the thing and this is the place that it's happening. Well, I'm going to get super Star Wars on you now. And no, that's not a reference to the Super Nintendo era of Star Wars video games. But rather, I want to talk about something that's exclusively in the realm of Star Wars. Luthen Rael. Is he a, is he a Jedi? What's his deal? What's going on with this guy? Because he has this incredible monologue where he's um, dressing down Lonnie McDonald. Um, and he's got this incredible cape and black outfit. And... It's like, I, I, I don't think he's a Jedi, and part of me wants him not to be a Jedi, but also it's kind of like thinking about his lines about how he's a coward uh, that he was saying to Saw, like that would totally line up with someone who, say, was a Jedi or was a Force user who just kind of went into hiding or 
did not like take to arms right away when the Empire did its big Order 66 and the entire takeover of the galaxy. Um, but I don't yeah. know. There's just like something. Oh, go ahead. If you got it. <laughs> well, I, I think it's a good point. Because um, now that you're saying that, I am thinking that this is how another Jedi who is in a similar circumstance, um, it, which is Kanan Jarrus, who's in Rebels, uh, uh, he talked about himself and the context of that. And I'm not implying that these guys are watching Rebels or reading John Jackson Miller's A New Dawn as they're writing this. But like that is the kind of language that I think... Um, Kanan does use in in a couple instances where he does talk about it. And I think I think the point of us thinking like I think us thinking he is a Jedi is the point. Um, And I think Mm -hmm, this is mm -hmm. a show about people who lie a lot and people who lie for, you know, liars, affectionate versus liars, derogatory. Um, And I think Luthen's a liar, uh, 50 percent affectionate. Um, And I think he knows that people think about how Jedi look or have a faint distant memory of the Jedi. And I think he probably knows that has some sort of cultural imprint among the people who are liable to flip sides and go against the Empire. Um, And so he probably tries to position himself in that way. And I just, I can't, maybe, maybe this is the part of my brain that can't be rational about this and like desperately hates the Jedi and doesn't want to see them show up ever again. I really can't imagine Mm -hmm. the Jedi actually showing up in this show. Um, and I guess Same. I'm kind of hoping that that isn't the case. And it's more just like doing kind of carrying on the tradition, quote unquote, tradition started by The Last Jedi, which is like playing on people's kind of slavering love of the Jedi um, and then being like, ha, psych, you thought. Uh, and maybe maybe I hope that's what that is. I hope um, I guess it would be fine if you were a Jedi or a Jedi that gave up or a quizzling Jedi or whatever. But like, I hope not. <laughs> um, I kind of. Uh, I'm 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 with you all the way. Like I would ra- I'd rather not have any force sensitivity really show up in this show. I know we're going to get a lightsaber ship and I'm sure we'll get elements <laughs> of it at some point in probably season 2. Um but I I like the idea of him performing as a Jedi mm-hmm. or using that as like a symbol of like something that they can fight for. We know eventually the re- rebellion's going to rally around the phrase may the force be with you. Um, that probably comes from somewhere. I don't know where I haven't, you know, watched Rebs. Uh, if you want to say the thing, if you want to say the line, Bart, you can say the line. Watch Rebs, um, There you go. Um, but I do like the idea that he's wrapping himself in some of that imagery, um, just to kind of possibly make a point or possibly make a point as he's going to take a more forward position in the rebellion or the rebel alliance or whatever the fuck he is right now. Um, like maybe this is him slowly kind of starting to step out into the front lines as after he was kind of challenged by saw about it. Um, I'd rather not see anyone move anything with their minds in this because um, I feel like I'm doing all the mental heavy lifting by watching this show because it's making me think in ways that I love. Um, and I don't need to have characters actually doing that for me. Um, but I just think it's interesting. You know, there was a question of who is Luthen Royale out of the saw um, conversation two episodes ago, I think it was. Um, and then we come back to it, and this scene doesn't answer that. In fact, it maybe even makes that question even harder, but it makes it all that much more richer. Like, I love that we're still trying to grapple with this character and who he is. Um, I don't know. I love it. Um, yeah. Maybe just go over some of the highlights of his speech, <laughs> uh, because there's just so much in here. Um, because, you know, Lonnie said he sacrificed a lot. He was a spy for the ISB in six years. Um, it's kind of interesting how the timeline works out, because... He would essentially have been a spy for the same amount of time that uh, Lieutenant Karn was working at Aldani. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So I'm wondering, because did Lonnie like kind of turn cloak against the Empire or was he kind of like, hey, you should go sign up for the ISB and work your way up like a little while ago? It's hard to tell because he doesn't have the facade of the true believer. He very much seems to be off kilter this entire episode. Um, But this kind of the language they used around him made me think that maybe this was his plan. He's just a little bit of a coward himself. (laughs) Um, But he's also partially doing it against his will. Like maybe he bought into it, um, but then he ended up having this wife and daughter. And then now it's like, well, you know, now he kind of has to do it or else they might harm them, which whether they do or not, I don't know. Um, But, you know, it's kind of like an interesting question. Like, we get a lot of rich backstory instantly for this character who was nothing but a stock character up until this episode. Um, But again, we're left with some questions as to exactly what his history and his commitment are to it. Yeah. And I think it's also kind of this um, quiet, quiet commentary on the... Um, oft herald argument on the left that like when people become parents and settle down and get married um, they become less radical Um, and I think there's certainly something to that in the U.S. um, particularly among um, white women white mothers of a certain class background they they certainly do become more conservative Um, but it's not true globally Um, and it's a it's a it's an argument that the global left has kind of onboarded, even though it's only true in the U.S. and under very specific circumstances. And I think this is basically making the play that, you know, this guy is thinking about becoming sort of more conservative in his uh, politics as he does now have, a you know, a family to support. Mm-hmm, and Luthen's mm-hmm. basically like, tough shit. What the fuck do you want your family to live in once you're dead? Um, and, and I like that they're kind of playing with that argument because it also kind of mirrors Mon's um Mon's kind of struggle, right? Like this, this, this issue of you want to keep your kids out of it as a parent. You want your kids to have the kind of most blessed, um, thought, thoughtless, affectionate, but like you know, you want your kids to be bubble boy from Seinfeld in a good way. Um, and and the truth that these parents are having to come to terms with, um, that only Marva really seems to have come to terms with in a very uh, good way so far, is you can't do that. And what you really need to be doing is 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 sort of inoculating or inuring your kids to the to the reality of the world, but also fighting every fucking second of every fucking day to make sure that the the world that your kids live in um as adults is nothing like the world that you lived in as an adult and as a child um, and and there's that kind of element of this question that is ever present in star wars never really kind of successfully or interestingly dealt with which is what is the inheritance that we leave for our children are we what they grow beyond um and it's nice to see in a speech that is about this kind of errant radicalism um and and the kind of inhumanity and and the heartlessness of trying to be a radical in a world in which radicals are punished by death um, that there is this very human and kind of touching moment of, but what is it for? Why do we do this? And 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 Luthen kind of taking that in and taking on the kind of suffering of the world. And I assume he thinks he's kind of a Christ-like figure, even though Jesus doesn't exist in universe, but he wants to be a martyr um, and is trying to play himself as a martyr um, to give this guy a, a reason to keep going. Yeah. Um, one thing I want to know, uh, just kind of play off what you were saying about, um, you know, as you get older, you get more conservative. Um, one of the reasons I find that specifically bullshit, at least in terms of American politics, is this country tends to kill its activists and its activists mm-hmm. tend to live in pretty bad material conditions. So they die early for, you know, a lot, like basically young radicals and young activists die early for a myriad of reasons. Um, so and that cannot be ignored when we just trot out this bullshit about, haha, if you get old and don't become conservative, you're a dumbass. It's like, no, a lot of people are being killed off the minute they have a radical thought or being marginalized in some way. But I think you're absolutely right with the fact that 
this is kind of the consideration of someone who, you know, is like, well, I used to be a firebrand, but now that I got a family and kids, I got to just think about them and like self-preservation and family preservation becomes um, the ultimate goal. And it should be stated that the very traditional family is a conservative value um, in all that. And I think that's what Luthen means when he says, I think of you constantly. Um, I don't know if he's constantly thinking about Lonnie because Lonnie's pretty unremarkable, but I think he's thinking of people like him uh, quite a bit, like, because those are people that, you know, are going to have to at some level turn or support the rebellion or at least, you know, get out of the way of them. Um, I can't say I, I am very familiar with, you know, the nitty gritty detail of actually overthrowing an empire unless it involves a lot of Ewoks. But these are the kind of people. It is another level of the question of revolution. We've seen true believers. We've seen fascists. Uh, we've seen people kind of caught in the middle. And this is just another type of person that's caught in the middle. And it makes a great backdrop for this incredible speech about sacrifice that Luthen gives, about how we need heroes, about how he sacrificed his calm, he sacrificed love, he sacrificed kinship. And those also are kind of things that made me think Jedi a little bit. Um, because those are things that are part of the Jedi um, lifestyle, as I know it, at least from the prequels. Um, he says something about he's made his home in a sunless place, um, and that he's, you know, damned for what he does. And there's this very specific thing where um, this whole episode, is ca it's called One Way Out, and it'll be a big part of the prison scenes we talk about next. But he talks about how 15 years ago, he basically made a calculation, and that, cal that equation has one outcome, one solution. Um, and that's, you know, what he's building towards and all that stuff. So um, it fits in very thematically with the episode title and what's going on with Circus and uh, Luna over on the prison. Um, but it's a nice twist on it. And I like, again, um, they did this after the Aldani heist is they they use Luthen to make a nice little button on the whole, like the big payoff or whatever's happening with Cass. Um, we do cut to Cass at the end of this episode running with Belshi. But it really is nice how they kind of break free of the prison and then they have kind of Luthen to add as like a punctuation point on this three episode arc. Yep. Yep. I, I also think um, I, I know I know we're talking about Stellan Skarsgård and Luthen here, but I think there's kind of been in this show right now. Um, there are three actors who I think are really like Genevieve O'Reilly. I feel like as Mon Mothma is in a league of her own right now, just because if you look at what she's done in her career before now and what she's doing in this show, the improvement is about 500%. Like even if you watch her in Rogue One, which I did last night, she's fine. Um, She's fine. She's not really interesting. She's certainly not embodying a character beyond just wearing the kind of same clothes <laughs> and wigs that she's, her character is expected to wear. And um, what she's doing in this show is, is fucking incredible and I think has to kind of be separated because it's it's about as much about a show of improvement as it is uh, a show of kind of success in itself uh, if you put her out of the way uh, you have three actors who I think are really doing some enormously impressive work um, and it is um, it is Diego Luna, it is Stellan Skarsgård, and it is Andy Serkis. Um, and I think um, it, it, there is something really interesting to me in that if you asked me to rank the performances in yesterday's episode, um, I would have actually put Stellan Skarsgård at the bottom of the three. Um, I think I would have gone Andy Serkis as sort of the standout, um, most amazing performance mm -hmm. ever. And then I think Diego Luna. Um, and Diego Luna is like traditionally a very good actor. Like he's very, very good. He always makes me laugh in Rogue One because he's out acting everybody who's around him um, and kind of sticks out like a sore thumb for that. Um, but I think the way that he is able to match Andy Serkis's um, a kind of charisma and and his acting talent in those scenes. And also, you know, like there, Harrison Ford had this great line 
um, after A New Hope came out, where he was talking about the character of Han, and he says, I'm not just a hero, I'm a hero's hero, referring to his relationship to Luke Skywalker. And and it's a great way of looking at it, but I think like Diego Luna is cashing in this, needs to not just be like the guy who can corral um, Andy Serkis's Kino Loy, who is the guy they've got cracking the whip, right? They haven't picked Kino Loy out for no reason. They picked him out because he's good at getting people to do things. And yet you now have Cashin able to make that guy bend to his will. And when, you know, when Diego Luna looks at him and is like, is that the best you've got? And you see Andy Serkis look down with tears in his eyes and then recover himself and whip out something much better. That is that kind of I'm playing a hero's hero moment. I'm playing I'm playing the radicals radical. Um, and, and his performance in this, I think, has really, really been standout. Um, and it is interesting to me because Stellan Skarsgård is always operating at 110% to actually have to put him at the bottom of the pack for this episode. Um, and it's not something I would have expected, but it is something that I, I would kind of like to point out because I think Diego Luna is possibly not getting enough credit so far for the acting, for the performance he's been putting out in, in this series. And it's mostly because Cashin's kind of sucked for most of the series. And now Cashin's really into it and Cashin really rocks and hasn't for the first like 10 episodes. Um, but but I do think that that kind of caliber of performance really is pointing worth pointing out. Yeah, I wouldn't disagree with your ranking at all. Um, uh, Luthen's just been great, but I think it's hard to say anything other than Circus is the star of the show yeah. here. Um so why, why don't we use that? Because I think we have just that one big plot thread to talk about, uh, One Way Out. Um, and it, honestly, One Way Out, like we kind of mentioned, applies to all the characters here. Um, it's very literal for Cass and company to get out of the prison. Um, Lonnie thought he had One Way Out as ISB spy, just hand over all the intel he has. Uh, Luthen views the One Way Out as revolution. Uh, for Mon Mothma, it's, you know, possibly, you know, arranged child marriage, which was her one way in <laughs> to, like, every oppressive structure that she's known. Um, and then there's obviously the one way out that is death, which is kind of what Kino is facing, assuming that he can't, you know, swim at the end and no one helps him. Uh, but what I think really stuck out is after, like, uh, Luna says, is that the best you got? Um, that's when, you know, he uh, Circus kind of recenters himself and starts building towards it. And the part that he really nails it is when he repeats Cass's line of um, you'd rather die trying to take them down rather than give them what they want. And it cuts to Luna giving this just like subtlest of affirming looks as like, yeah, that's right, kid. Even though Kino's obviously like probably twice his age here. <laughs> um, it's the second time we've seen one character be told a line and then another repeat it to someone else. It's almost like a game of telephone. There's a theme of like messaging, of convincing someone of a truth and having them turn around and tell someone else about it. And I think we were a little bit skeptical of Val repeating Sinta's line, but I think the way Circus's Kino Lloyd does it here is very empowering um, and it makes it his own in a way. Um, and I really love it. And then that from there, um, his just speech takes off about how we're not going to leave a single person behind. Um, if someone's confused, we're going to help them. Um, it's great. It is just fantastic stuff. And it's a great turn of the character. What the show has done really well with Kino, with Luthen, with Val, is that they show us the moments where they waver. And we've seen it a little bit with Cass too, only to see when they actually steal themselves and actually go through with the thing, how powerful and how cathartic that can be as an audience member, as a viewer of this stuff. Yeah. Um, I think the 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 kind of parroting and passing of this language is really interesting for me. Um, there, there's a, an anecdote that I, I like 
whipping out every so often because I think it, it, it works for a lot of situations. But in Imperial Russia, um, the Tsarist censors uh, got their hands on a copy of Karl Marx's Capital and, and chose not to censor it on the basis that the uh, feudal peasantry were by and large illiterate. Uh, and so the book couldn't do them any harm, couldn't do the imperial state any harm because the peasantry, the people who had the most to gain by reading it, um, wouldn't be able to read it uh, because they were illiterate. Uh, and so they didn't they didn't censor it. Uh, and of course, we all know what happens next. Uh, that is top 10 pictures taken before a disaster. Um, and, and one of the ways in which um, people and you know the the feudal serfs the the ways in which they were able to read and pass around the writing of 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 the writings of Marx um Capital a, a book I should add that like most leftists now particularly Anglo leftists are like oh I can't read that nobody can read that it's really inaccessible but fucking feudal serfs in Russia in the year of our Lord 1901 were reading it like please cry me a river anyways and um, so the the way that they were able to read it is. Someone would read it and then they would read it to other people and they would use these these networks, these social networks that we all have because we're human beings. And if the one thing that makes us human isn't socializing, I don't know what is. Um, but they were able to transmit orally the what they could not transmit through writing. Um, and, and I think that is also kind of the history of of the left in a lot of ways is um it's it is it is the story of influence um and not like in a tiktok influencer ways but um in the story of someone hears something or reads something and takes it and and adapts it and makes it their own and this is how um you know intellectual movements uh, flourish and adapt and evolve um and and i think there's something kind of um delightful in seeing the different ways in which all of these lines can be used and and reapplied and and kind of editorialized on you know like it's funny when Val uses Sinta's line because Sinta's saying you know keep hold it the fuck together um about to Val it, because they're doing armed revolution um and then Val turns around and uses it for Mon who's just doing boring liberal reformism um or you see um Cashin using it as as sort of like a last ditch attempt to kind of break someone down to break down their last kind of um, uh, you know, barricades of of liberalism that, that that has hold on them mentally, and and then Kino turns around and uses it as a rallying cry, a way to pump people up, to build people up, not to break them down. Um, and I think there's really something kind of fascinating about that as well, because it is again, it's just tapping into this historical tradition um, on the left, and 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 I think um, and I think it's nice to see that situated as well in, in something like Star Wars, where we know there's a writing system and we know all these different places have written the written word. But like so far, the only way that we've seen the kind of transmission of ideas is through like them flogging the horse to death with like Yoda's do or do not. There is no try or other like stupid, not stupid, but kind of pithy things that are deployed in exactly the same context in which they were originally deployed um, and seeing them mm -hmm. take this and adapt it and kind of do a little dialectical excursion with the things that are happening, I think is is fascinating because it's so much more of an organic and kind of true to true to reality and true to the left way of, of handling conversation and intellectual influence. There's only one way out and that's fighting, armed revolution, a communal <laughs> commitment to the goal. And a lot do die trying. I juxtaposed it to what Kino said the night before. No one is getting out. Emphasis on the one. This can't be done by just one person, one hero. Even Luthen says we need heroes. We all got to do this now. If someone is confused or lost, you got to get them up and keep them moving, which I think is very powerful because 
I think it's like best exampled by the new man on the floor who's coming in and is not privy to the plans. Mm -hmm. But as soon as shit starts going to hell, he's like, well, let me grab this stun rod and like (laughs) get this guy before it murked. And a lot of people like die. I mean, it's hard to keep track of everyone, but you know, Zal, you know, you're not calling Zal, you can't better call Zal anymore. He's definitely dead. Um, I think a couple other of the named characters, the other guy who tried to climb up the elevator definitely got got. Um, It was a high death toll. Um, And one thing I kind of talked about after the Eldani heist was how this show appears to be building to these, you know, climaxes every three or four episodes or whatever. And then each climax is higher than the last climax. So at the end of episode three, we had the Ferrix escape. And that was mostly just about um, Cass and Luthen. But then you get the Aldani heist. You have a small team of rebels that you're really invested in and, you know, a couple of their financiers. But now with Narkina 5, you have an entire prison riot. Um, These aren't people who are in the cause or, like, explicitly in the cause, per se. They might be now. Um, I think it's very telling that the prison uniforms are white and orange, (laughs) the same colors as the Rebellion. This episode literally opens up with Andy Serkis putting on the colors of the Rebellion to start the episode. (laughs) Um, But each of these climaxes is getting broader in scope. It involves more people, requires more work in terms of building buy-in to a goal, um, and I think it's also just paying off what we've seen in these last three episodes of all the buildup with the detailed procedures of the different guard uh, routines and sentry paths, like this pe- person's always running late, um, all the little moving parts of security um, and all the little things that the prisoners have to do, all the little tools that they have to use, it all pays off. And it even pays off in Star Wars ways, like all the piping that's coming from the top uh, when they unleash it, when they say attack. They start spraying fumes that reminds me of the carbonite chamber in that Empire Strikes Back when Luke and Vader are cutting those up and like blowing smoke in each other's asses. Um, <laughs> wait, no, that's not how it goes. But it's like, it, so it's like, like it's very similar also when, um, what's it called? Uh, Kino is giving his speech into the comms unit and it's very much the Han thing from uh, A New Hope. Like the way that it's like two little spokes sticking out of the control panel. And that's not like an Easter egg. This is just what design looks like in this world. Uh, Like Tony Gilroy says, we're just taking it seriously. This is what it would look like. But it still kind of evokes that in you because, you know, Star Wars is so iconic in its iconography. Oh, God, that's redundant way of saying it. (laughs) But it just like all those little details are so details, not details. Details are so finely tuned so that every glance, every whisper, every little thing on set it feels like it mattered and it that's what you know helps the like cathartic emotion come through in the finale of this yeah and i think one of the things that i find really remarkable about the show but again i have to keep reminding myself that this is just what con- like competent filmmaking is um they don't have to tell you anything um there's a bit where um i can't i can't actually remember what it is but i just remember turning to connor who i was watching it with and being like if this had been the rings of power they would have said uh this is this guy's machine that's being used to kill him and and they wouldn't have let the irony wash over you um because they wouldn't have trusted you to do it and and you know this show has clued us into the detailed orientedness of of this entire plan and and the amount of like moving parts that um, it requires mastery of of for successful execution not by having anybody talk about it. We don't actually hear the full plan ever described until we're watching it happen, but they've used the tricks of the trade, the tricks of filmmaking to show us 
the camera pans here. We see the guards. There's some background dialogue that's talking about how the guards are down. We hear that in the background. We see the way that the lights flicker. We see that there's water in the bathroom. We know that the floor is electric. We don't have anybody do the fucking, you know what it is. It's the Faramir and, and Henneth Annan thing where they're literally <laughs> pointing out on a map to be like, oh, and then and then Sauron will take uh, the east via Athelion and Saruman will take uh, Rohan from the west. And we don't need that. The show trusts us to, know, to get what the fuck's going on. And if they don't, like, and even if we don't get what's going on in advance, we'll get it as it's happening. And they trust that that's enough and that the emotional weight and impact of the movie or the TV show, rather, will not be lessened by people coming to those conclusions at different points in the chronology. And I think that is, again, it's just rote competency. It's not radical. It's not revolutionary, but it's brilliant to see. Yeah. Um, let, let's park on Circus here for a little bit, because really his performance this entire episode is incredible it's like some of the best mm-hmm. thing i've ever seen um i want to talk about his speech a little bit uh first of all um the one way out has a certain resonance with uh what uh vel was saying back in the eldani heist about what one path one choice we win or everyone dies mm-hmm. um it feels very of a piece with that and i'm also thinking a little bit about um god damn it i just lost it i had an incredible thought Oh, um, I'm thinking about uh, what Skeen was saying at the end of his run, at the end of episode six, about how he views Cass as, you know, we're people who climb over other people to get out of this (gasps) and how it's a very individual. And the point of this episode is very much in antithesis to that. It's like, we're going to start climbing, but we're not climbing over other people. We're not leaving anyone behind. We're picking other people up as we go. Um, it is just a complete juxtaposition from the mentality that Skeen was saying, this is also you, Cass, in episode six. Um, now, and we've seen Andor actually kind of make that progression in his character where we saw him caring for Olaf. We see him very fine-tuned to the other people in this facility. And I really like the fact, and they do this really well with the actual camera work where when Cass and uh, Kino are going up to the command center... Uh, we see the camera kind of tilt upwards and you see this infinite like stairway to heaven mm-hmm. of white lights that they have to climb up. Um, and then later when uh, Kino's actually giving this piece, all the stairwell lights are turned red and we see just, you know, prisoner after prisoner just running up and it's almost like intoxicating how many of them there are. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're all like moving in perfect circular motion on making their way up and everyone's doing it. It's not just, you know, one guy climbing up above the rest. It's, just spectacular filmmaking, really. Yes. And, and I think the other thing is it makes the point very effectively because we see these shots of all of the prison guards cowering behind the door. You know, they've got their weapons at the ready, but really they're not engaging. And it's because they know that they're outnumbered. They know that they're outnumbered. It just took that initial show of force for them to back off and realize that they couldn't win this based off of the numbers. But they're also not paid enough to get involved in this. You know, it's not like, you know, they're not it's not their fucking job. Like, I mean, it is technically, but their job, they've made the calculation in that moment that their job is not worth more than their life. And, 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 and effectively preying on that weakness, that knowledge that nobody's listening. They don't care. They're under-resourced and overworked. So strike while the iron is hot, as, as Cashin effectively says for two episodes now, it's shown to be true. And, and there's this kind of joy almost this catharsis as we're watching all of these guys who, you know, in the other shifts who have never talked to the, the you know, cash and shift. They don't know who these people are. They, they have not communicated this plan with them before, not even through the sign language. They all come up in this sort of joyous 
freedom, this joyous liberation. And, and I think the other sort of part of that that I find really fascinating and, and, and really just incredible is we have to keep reminding ourselves that this is a prison. Um, it's a prison. Um, and, and yes, we know that the empire is bad, um, but I don't think, you know, but we also know that the American empire is bad. I don't think a TV show that included a prison break at a U.S. prison would have as much um, outright empathy for and 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 sort of um like like discursive liberation of the prisoners right there's no implication that oh well this includes murderers and rapists who are getting out um oh this is all the people who stole from little old ladies and oh we should be having a moral panic over this prison break it is making the case no this prison is fucking wrong this prison is anti-human um, and it is good and right that these prisoners are making a break for it. And that the fact that they are doing it and this sort of show of collective force and collective action is is um, is something that the show heralds. Uh, and it actually reminded me of an interview that the, the sociologist Dylan Riley gave to Mother Jones magazine, maybe. But But one of the things he says is, for me, the thing that Marxism offers that no other political tradition does is a devastating critique of contemporary society that is fundamentally not reliant on moral denunciation. That's a huge advantage, in my opinion. It also creates a certain difficulty in translating that culture to the culture of U.S. progressivism. And that's also a thing that I think the, the show has really alighted quite well, where a lot of U.S. progressives and a lot of U.S. liberals, when they are trying to make these statements about the fundamental um, incorrectness of the world, the fundamental political incorrectness in the world of the world, if you bring up the fact that, oh, well, prisoner, like, you know, some prisoners are rapists, some prisoners are murderers, murderers, they back off and they go, oh, well, in that case, slavery is fine. Or in that case, torture is okay. And this show doesn't have time for that. This show is totally devoid of, of of moral considerations in a very positive sense. It is saying politically a prison that is a torture site is bad and politically it is good when prisoners band together and kill the fucking screws and go to freedom. And there's no question about the individual moral qualms or quandaries here. And I think that is really the thing that makes this kind of catharsis of this prison riot all the more beautiful be because it just lets everybody be free and liberated regardless of who they are as individuals. Yeah, I mean, the only person we might have had any little distaste for amongst the prisoners was Kino, yes. just because he was kind of like the self-made screw. And that was very deliberate because they turned him into, um, you know, kind of the driving force of these last three episodes. It's kind of his change and his rise to his moment that really um, kind of makes this whole thing come off so powerfully. Um, yeah, I love it. There's like no unnecessary conflict. There's no moralizing. I think last time we talked about how liberals tend to moralize between peaceful protesters and non-peaceful mm -hmm. protesters. And this is basically the same thing, but instead of protesters, it's prisoners. Yep. Um, and there doesn't need to be any of that stuff. Um, I love it. I didn't even really pick that out, but God, that's so good. The show is so fucking good, yeah. um, which um, it kind of makes me regret that we have to kind of now talk about I don't know if you know this, Emily, but I also can't swim, <gasps> oh, or at least not. No. I would not. I cannot swim well enough to um, make whatever distance that they were going. I probably wouldn't be able to pull myself back up after the dive. To be oh, honest, no. uh, oh, that's but, heartbreaking. Uh, God, this ending is so. It's like the perfect bittersweet moment because it's. It makes you like think about all the times that Kino was kind of wavering or getting really sad, or you saw the tears in his eyes. And you had so many different interpretations of what it could be in the moment. And then when it kind of sinks in that, oh, it's probably this. It's probably the fact that he knows there's one way out and it's one way that he really can't take. Um, and it seems it's very possible, you know, 
he dived and someone helped him get all the shore. It's, it looks like a long way to shore. That's a long way mm-hmm. to help someone helping. Um, it's very possible he gets recaptured. And I don't want to sit here and talk about when will we see Kino Loy again <laughs> or will we see Kino Loy again? It, what really matters is the fact that he still made choices that brought him up to the point where he couldn't go any further. Um, he had a couple chances to either stop it or just be like, I can't do this and back away and make Cassin do it. But no, he he did it. And it's it's so tragic just thinking of him after the speech running to the edge, shouting one way out, one way out, everyone chanting Ooh. with him, um, even knowing that he can't cross that finish line. Um, it, oh God, it's so heartbreaking, but so good. It's like the perfect bittersweet ending. George Martin, I hope you're taking notes. <laughs> uh, he keeps saying he wants the end of A Song of Ice and Fire to be bittersweet. And God, this show did it in just... The, Perfect, perfect fashion. I don't even know what else there is to say. Yeah, I, I think for me, right, like, I, I don't think, um, I think, I think Kino is thinking about this in a very particular way, right? Because when he's talking about one way out, he's talking about death. Um, and it's, it's, you know, it's very clear that, that he's only ever talking about death. And, you know, you could take it in a nihilist sense where even once all these prisoners get out, they're going to have to deal with the reality of life under the empire. And isn't that effectively death anyways? But for Kino, it is, do you die in prison? Or do you die on top of the prison, having gotten all of these people out? And it's you choose the manner of your death. And I think that is one of the things that I've always loved about Rogue One. You know, I make jokes about, you know, Cashin goes to Scarif because he's down bad and like this is what British Pussy does to you or whatever. But like in in reality, like um, is the speech that Cashin gives in, in Rogue One, which is, you know, he's done a lot of things in his life and, and his life is starting to come to um, a, a critical juncture. It's possibly coming to an end point. And um, if that is the case, he would like to go out doing something that makes it all worthwhile. Um, and and um, if the end of Empire um, is something that is so distant um, that you cannot imagine getting to it in life, then the best thing you can do is to to die in a manner befitting someone who is uh, anti-empire and anti-imperial. Um, and, you know, Cashin makes the call to go to Scarif and he doesn't build out his his exit uh, as Luthen tells him to in episode three and he dies um, and he dies. You know, he his last line is to Jin, which is your father would have been proud. But I think also in that moment, like his father would have been proud um, and his mother um, who God, I hope is dead before Rogue One happens, also would have been proud. And look at all of these people that would have been proud of Cashin and look at the thing, the massive death knell he struck against um, the Empire. And this is what Kino's also doing. Um, and Kino's not going to get to see his family again. And we know that he has a family um, and he's not going to get to see his family again, but he's choosing the manner in which to die. And 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 it is horribly sad, but it's also horribly freeing. Um, and I think it's horribly liberating. Um, and I think, you know, it... it, it I cried. I cried a lot. Um, but I'm also, it's kind of like a happy tear kind of thing. Like, you know, if mm-hmm. someone you know is in pain for a long time and, you know, dealing with a really bad, uh, painful disease, a degenerative disease at some point and, and, and they die and it's sad because you miss them and you wanted their life to not be like that and you wanted them to get to live forever and be happy and comfortable. But there's also that kind of horrible sense of relief where it's like, but the pain is gone. And I think for, for Kino, my my feeling on Kino is kind of that as well, except he gets to choose the manner in which the pain stops, and he gets to stop the pain for a lot of other people. Um, and it's it's a it, it puts a human cost on death in Star Wars that we never see. Like you know, Luke quote unquote sacrifices himself um, in the original trilogy by going to Vader, um, but he doesn't die. 
he doesn't really die. Uh, nobody that we actually care about actually dies. And, you know, Luke does kind of die in, in Last Jedi. Well, not kind of die. He does die, and he should have stayed dead um, after the end of The Last Jedi. And and he does it in a sort of self-sacrifice way. Um, but obviously, Star Wars fans were too immature to, to handle that in a serious way. They weren't ready to have a human cost on, on war and on uh, a fight against an all-encompassing sort of fascism. Um, and this show puts it there, and it doesn't give you an option. It doesn't give you Kino as a Jedi so he can come back, and it doesn't fucking give you Kino as Snoke and he's going to come back for The Force Awakens. This man dies and he's not coming back, but God, what his death meant something and it was powerful and and his death in some ways almost meant more than his life. And that is the kind of direction Star Wars should be going because that is the kind of truth of, of the world in a lot of ways. Yeah, it's a it's an existential win. It is not necessarily like yeah. a material win because he's, you know, probably not getting out. I hope we don't see him again. That just means as his character because he hit a perfect like finish point. <laughs> Um, and that's like powerful in a way that so much of like good uh, or like happy and sad endings in Star Wars are, did the good guys have a material win? Mm-hmm. Did they blow up the thing? Did they beat this bad guy? Did they escape with this or whatever? And this really just feels like, an, like I said, an existential win, a character win. There was a no chance and no choice moment for Kino. Um, he, you know, it's, it's just fabulous writing and it, it's such a good use of, your your cast it's incredible to pull in andy circus and then give him this kind of material um and it just pays off so wonderfully uh yeah god um yeah before we wind up uh just the last shot uh the last couple shots of uh cass and melshi running through this like kind of dusty desert gray it's hard to tell because it's nighttime but it's got three moons and he's running what appears to be alongside a quarry or mm-hmm. of some sort, um, which would just, you know, kind of fit into the kind of planet that the Empire would probably put prisons on. It's probably close to natural mater- or raw materials or something like that. Um, it also vaguely makes me think of Canari yep. a little bit, um, just because I feel like that's maybe one thread of the plot that they've kind of left out there. But I can see it playing a much bigger role, especially if we get maybe some more scenes with Cass and Marva in the final episodes. But Man, it just looked good. It felt great to have another great Star Wars skyline, like maybe the most arresting since, you know, Twin Suns or mm-hmm. the Twin Suns reprise in Last Jedi. Um, I don't know. It was just fantastic stuff. So, yeah. And there's this nice kind of thing where, um, you know, we make fun of glup shittos or whatever. And Melshi is, Melshi's a glup shitto, right? But Melshi's a glup shitto and it's the funniest shit in the world. He got rehired again because he just had good vibes. Uh, and that's because he's from Edinburgh, and that's because uh, people from the East Coast, Central Belt of Scotland are uh, the best people in the world. Uh, fuck the hairs on the West Coast. Um, I'll just say the East Coast generally. It doesn't have to be the Central Belt. Anyways, um, he got hired back on the vibes, right? And, and and now they're building out this really interesting and fascinating story for him. But I think one of the things that I quite like about this is that, like, again, we don't know shit about Malshi. <laughs> we know that he was, like, gung-ho on a prison riot. We don't know what he did. He may have, like murdered his grandmother and turned her into a lampshade but like now he's on the right side of things and he's about to become cashin's best friend in fanon well he's already been there but he's gonna become cashin's best friend in fanon for the rest of days um and and it's nice to have this like this kind of start to a character that we know survives at least for five more years um where we don't need to know everything um, and, and, you know, like, I think you're right. I think the Canary reference is, is good and interesting. And I think it will probably come back in some form. But also, if it doesn't come back, I don't really feel hacked off about that. Because, like, if I think about the things that happened in my life as, you know, when I was 13, 
it doesn't matter. Like, it doesn't, like, you know, I did some, I'm sure I did something stupid when I was 13 or did something cool when I was 13. It doesn't affect me as a 24 year old now. Um, sometimes things just happen in life because things just happen in life. Um, and it doesn't have to have a wider symbolic purpose. Um, and, and I like that the show kind of allows that to happen sometimes. Like sometimes people just exist and they don't need to be the people that change your life. They can just be other human beings who share the, the world with you, the planet with you. Um, and, and the fact of these connections, I think being more for the like thematic, uh, like you say, the kind of this is the kind of place that the empire would fuck up. This is the resource extraction. These are the the Chilean mines. Um, these are the this is the rare earth mining of the empire. It is nice to see that these things can be kind of like serendipitous, um, but still connected to a wider theme without it needing to be literally fucking binary sunset or yet another like desert planet or yet another like orphaned child who just really wants a Jedi mm. to take care of them and like. Um, it is the the kind of simplicity of uh, the story that is tied together by having a thematic coherence that I think is, you know, if I take nothing else away from the show, it will be that in terms of storytelling. All right. So uh, before we head out of here, let's read off our patrons. Just a reminder, if you are at the five and ten dollar levels, you can get your very own Middle Earth Elvish name in one of the various Elvish languages or even another one if Emily feels so inclined. <laughs> Um, $10 patrons will have their names read off at the end of every episode, and we will cycle through our $5 patrons. So uh, do you want to kick this off for us, Emily? Yes. For starters, we have Johnny Flores Jr., a.k.a. Lothaman of Palenka. We have Ed the Revelator, who is Silent Spider, the guardian of Kirith Ungol. Iwendil, a.k.a. Haley Glyphs. Matthew Abbott, a.k.a. Evranro Minyatar. Ithrenor of Kodkorthad, a.k.a. Maddie Hill. Sal Quendiel, a.k.a. Cam Lewis. <laughs> and Lake Wamelma, a.k.a. Zach Newman. And our two $5 patrons this week are Meowndil of Arusto, or Connor B. <laughs> and Ethan McDougall, a.k.a. Morthorion Razgon of Body Thass. Uh, I'm going to murder your partner's Elvish name every time I can. That's why I gave that one to me. Um, and just a reminder, you can send us emails about Andor at my brother, my captain, my podcast at gmail.com and follow us at my bro, my cat, my pop, uh, my pop, <laughs> my bro, my cat, my pod on Instagram and Twitter. Um, so that closes the book on this episode. And you can also support this podcast by subscribing to patreon.com slash my bro, my cat, my pod where you'll get access to special bonus content, early access to all episodes, and access to our community Discord, which if you're looking for a place to run to after Twitter, uh, feel free to hop in there because we all have Twitter brain poisoning in that space. Um, I've been Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. My last episode covering Metal Gear Solid over at Podcast Sans Frontiers will, be, will have dropped this previous Friday, so please check that out. And I am continuing the Song of Ice and Fire coverage over at Nauticast ASOIAF. And I've been Emily, aka JR Tweetin, which is where you can find me on Twitter, where I will also be throwing all of my tools at a whole bunch of prison screws. Saying Sigroni Tima to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, aka Ethraglier and Drethion, aka DJ Empirical on Twitter. Please remember to like and review wherever you may be listening. So until next time, remember, I would have followed you, my brother, my captain, my king.